Welcome to Co-Recursive, where we bring you discussions with thought leaders in the world of software development. I am Adam, your host. One of my life's goals, I think, is to help people remember what they, they found in computer programming originally. That is Jameis Buck. A decade ago, Jameis was not loving his job, even though he was an important open source contributor. He was also working for the hottest and trendiest software company at the time, 37 Signals. Um, they were the creator of Ruby on Rails. He was on top of the world, um, but he was burnt out. Today, I talked to Jameis about recreational programming, building mazes, building 3D renderings. He has written books on both of them. If you like the podcast, subscribe to it. Tell your colleagues when you are telling your coworker about the strange 3D rendering engine you made in a couple pages of code uh, over the weekend. Tell them you heard about it on the Co-Recursive podcast. Jameis Buck, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Sure. Thanks for having me, Adam. I have one of your books here, uh, Mazes for Programmers, like in my hand. And I've been also been looking through your other Ray Tracer book. That they're like super fun books, and I'm and I'm really excited to uh, to to talk about them. Uh, and then as I as I got this book and I started working through it, um, I started like internet stalking you a little bit because I was like, who who writes a book <laughs> uh, just about mazes? I I noticed that like for a long time or in the past you were you were the maintainer of like very very practical and important open source tools and then it seems like you kind of stepped back from them and now you're doing more kind of like yeah I don't want to say frivolous but more more fun focused programming so yeah recreational recreational so so what what led to that change I well I mean I've always loved programming and I've always loved recreational programming um it was back in high school when I first even learned you could generate random mazes. And I've kind of been in love with that and ray tracing for a long time. So that part isn't new. Um, but I had a, a dream job working for, it was called 37 Signals at the time. It's now called Basecamp. And I really loved everything about it. The people were amazing. The job was amazing. The work was amazing. The environment was amazing. The compensation was amazing. Like there's nothing that was not good about that environment. But um, I just started feeling a lack of motivation, a lack of drive. I couldn't make myself focus um, over the course of a few few years. And at first I thought, well, maybe I just have too much on my plate. And so I started letting go of some of those projects like uh, Capistrano and and uh, NetSSH and some of these other Ruby libraries that I've been working on. And uh, uh, it didn't make much of a difference ultimately. Ultimately, I wound up leaving that job and taking about a year off. And that's when I wrote my maze book. And uh, I basically discovered that what I was suffering from was burnout. And it wasn't a lack of my ability to, to work. It was more a psychological block that I had to had to work through and uh how did you know that you were burnt out on on software or or work or um software used to be something that i loved to do 
as a hobby in addition to professionally. So I I always had a dozen things going on the back burner, just on the side doing this, playing with different ideas, um, experimenting with different technologies. It, it was just always something I was very passionate about. And then over the course of about four years, my desire to, to work on any of that just dropped. Um, and it really wasn't until... Well, probably until the, like the last six months at, at base camp when I stumbled on some article that was talking about burnout and it really clicked for me. That this is what I was struggling with and what I was suffering from. Um, but by that point, I'd already like divested myself of all my side projects and um, just couldn't couldn't focus at work, couldn't get myself motivated. It just wasn't fun anymore. Um, and it was really frustrating because I loved the people there. I loved the my bosses. I loved the work. It was it was really a great place, but it wasn't fair to them that I'd be pulling a paycheck when I couldn't do the work. So that's kind of why I dropped off of that. Um, ultimately, the, the thing that kind of, like in retrospect, like looking back on it all, um, well... Burnout is an interesting thing. People get this idea that you burn out because you've worked too hard. Mm -hmm. You burn out because the workload is too heavy and, and you, you work too hard and you lose all your motivation and then it goes away. And that's what causes burnout. And it's true that that is one thing that can cause burnout, but there's actually a lot of different factors that can play into it. And so that wasn't my story at all. For me, it was, um, there's, a, there's another factor, uh, like a lack of control is what it's called. And for me, it was this perceived lack of control um, over my environment and situation that I think actually triggered it for me. Back when I was working on Capistrano, which was um, a tool I wrote for Basecamp, for 37 Signals, for deploying and managing multiple remote servers, mm-hmm. um, I wrote it on you know, as part of my job, but then Jason and David, my bosses gave me that tool to be my own, to do what I want with, to manage it and maintain it. And so that was really cool, very generous of them. And I worked really hard on it. And I lined up a a gig where I was going to be able to go and do some training with it. And I was really excited about that. But when David heard about it, he pointed out that there was kind of a conflict of interest there that, um, you know, was I working for Basecamp or was I working for myself doing training and pulling money that way? So he he uh, he basically discouraged me from doing that. And uh, when I learned about that, it, it kind of took the wind out of my sails. And over the next couple of years, I found myself losing the desire to work on anything. And it, it seems silly to talk about it like that because it it wasn't that big of a deal. But it's the mm-hmm. kind of thing where, like, it was a psychological injury, I guess. It just took me by surprise, caught me unawares, and I never quite got my feet back under under me after that. And it was far too late by the time I realized what was going on and what was happening. So anyway, that's that's kind of my burnout story. My, you know, if I were to do it all again, I, I don't know, maybe if I'd known more about how it worked and 
what burnout was and what what my struggle was. Maybe I could have recovered sooner, but uh, it's been a good path for me overall. I've, I've learned a lot and I've grown a lot and I've done a lot of things I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. Like, did you know at the time, like how much this would affect you or is it more of a, uh, like under the surface type of thing? It was, it was really subtle. Um, like I said, at the time when I was told I, I couldn't do that training for Capistrano, I was frustrated, but I got over it. You know, I, I recognized that, uh, I probably did need to focus my priorities and, and choose one or the other. And, and so at the, at the time it didn't seem that career threatening, um, it's only in retrospect that, you know, as I've pondered the path and the, the pieces all came, to, came together that I, I saw how that all worked. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that uh, I had any inkling at the time, like where it was going to go. Even even in the, at the darkest time of my burnout, I don't know that I really realized what was happening. That sounds like the trickiest part of the of the whole thing to be honest. You can't see it. It is really subtle. The whole the whole process is it's not like falling off a cliff. It's like walking down a gentle slope until suddenly you're you're way down in a valley in the dark and you're wondering how you got there and you're not sure what the problem is and you're not sure what the solution is. And uh, you know, for me it took the better part of a year to to recover and I still, like, I don't have the same desire to, to do software all the time that I used to. And, and, and probably that's, that's healthier, <laughs> have a little more balanced lifestyle. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it changed me and for better and for worse, I think. How did you recover from this? Well, the first step was for me to quit my job, which was terrifying. Um, we had, we had some savings set aside and we could... We knew, and, and then my wife started um, teaching some music classes to supplement. But we uh, we were okay, but it was still terrifying, you know, wondering how we were going to do health insurance. We had um, young children, four young kids, and um, but you know that's what I had to do. I had to get away from it all for an extended period of time, try a bunch of different things, and and really kind of, you know, think a lot about it, get to the root of what the problem was and how I got there. Um, eventually I, you know, I wrote that book about, uh, programming or mazes for programmers. I, uh, I wrote a little online novella about algorithms and, uh, you know, exploring algorithms and, you know, I did a, I did a few little quirky side things and gradually kind of got my feet under me again and, hung out a shingle and I've been doing freelance ever since. The reason I ask you about this, it seems very personal, but I found when working through the Mazes book, which Mm -hmm. is the one I'm most familiar with, um, it seems to be invigorating almost, you know, an an antidote for burnout. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if your, um, I wonder if your experience had had informed these books. I I hope so, because that was really... Part of my journey um, after quitting base camp was kind of thinking about the things that used to excite me about computers 
And I thought back to high school when one of my classmates first showed me a program that he'd written that generates a random maze and just being a, like blown away by that. And uh, just the joy I remembered from tinkering with uh, ray tracers and ray tracing. And it all just kind of came together um, with the maze book, realizing, you know what, I think I, because I wrote, I wrote a whole series of articles on my blog about the maze algorithms. And it all kind of came together during my uh, year off, basically. And I was like, you know what? I, I probably have something to say about this. And uh, it really is in large part, I, I want people to, to remember what brought them to computers. And not everyone came to it because they found something recreational to do. You know, a lot of people come to it because they want to make a career out of it. They're, they approach it more business-like. But for a lot of us, Finding, you know, writing your first computer program was like discovering that you can cast magic spells and <laughs> and realizing that, wow, if I tell the computer to do this, it'll do it. And it's like discovering the superpower that you didn't know you had. And that was a really exciting thing, I remember. And I, I want to help people recapture that. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think the first thing I built that was like really legitimate uh, was like a, a Yahtzee game. Um, <laughs> awesome and it would like keep score like you would roll the dice you know and then it would the trickiest part was like it would figure out i forget how yahtzee works but like figuring out which score thing applied to give you the best score yeah. for your dice yeah awesome yeah i think i did a i think i did a, a war game back in high school when i was first learning the right software and i did a bunch of choose your own adventure things you know it, it was awesome it was it's so fun to discover that stuff there's a certain, I feel like there's a certain like narrowing down of like what I've done. Um, you know, like when I first played around with computer programming and like there, there was so much amazing stuff. Um, but I feel like a, a lot of a uh, professional software development now, it seems to be like, um, you know, like there's some sort of data store and you're like updating it or, or reading data from it. Or maybe you're just knitting together two APIs into another. Like the, the domain is, is like, has become. Uh, very restricted. Yeah. There's a lot of specialization now. And, uh, you you know, you start your career with the, you know, the whole world at your feet, basically, and you get your first job. And then suddenly that's your specialization. You know, maybe it's developing web apps. Maybe it's um, sysops. Maybe it's, you know, uh, whatever it happens to be. Um, it, it becomes harder to break out of that because that's what you do all day. And uh, I think it's easy to lose track of what originally brought you to the field. And uh, that's where I hope books like, you know, uh, Mazes for Programmers or the Ray Tracer Challenge, I hope those can help people either remember or rediscover or find something new to love about computers. So let's let's dig in. Um, so I'll start with the Mazes book. So like, what is what's a maze and, and why is that? Uh, why would you write a book about mazes and maze generation? Well, let me start with your last question first. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I wrote the book because I loved generating mazes. And I was huge into Dungeons and Dragons back, you know, around 1999, 2000. And it was right around the time the third edition of D&D was coming out in, in 3.5. And I, I wrote, um, I wrote, a lot of software around Dungeons and Dragons back then. I wrote uh, a 
character generator. I wrote a treasure horde generator and I wrote a dungeon generator. And it, I, you know, I used some of the stuff I remembered from high school about generating random mazes. And I put that online and it was surprisingly popular. People were really thrilled about that and it, it made me happy and it, I loved to work on it. So, you know, that's kind of where, that's where my history of mazes was like little bits and pieces along the way and all of it associated with happy happiness, you know, hobbies and discovery and making other people happy. And so there's a lot of pleasant associations there for me. Um, as far as what mazes are, it, it took me longer to embrace the, you know, the math behind it all um, because there is a lot of math uh, behind the theory of mazes. And the happy thing is you don't have to know any of it in order to play with mazes. But if you do know it, it's like another world that's kind of revealed behind the mirror, you know, like it all kind of comes together. Um, you know, a maze is a tree, which uh, computer programmers tend to be familiar with because we use those in a lot of contexts. But it's a tree that's been laid out in a particular uh, a particular way, a particular whether it's a grid or you can do it in three dimensions, uh, all kinds of different layouts. And uh, once you realize that, then you start realizing that, well, okay, what if I take this tree, which is really a graph, and I add loops to it so that it, you have you know, cycles you can make inside the maze. And anyway, once you know the theory behind it, it kind of opens up a lot of other ideas. But you don't have to know any of that in order to start playing with it or even get pretty far down that road. Yeah, I was, I'm surprised about how deep it is let me okay let me let's back up so we were talking mm -hmm. about mazes um like this is just a maze like in a in a children's activity book you start in one spot and there's like paths and and you find your way through um and then what when you describe it as a a graph i guess a, i never thought of this before the book i guess i haven't thought much in depth about mazes before but um so it's like if you take your path through the maze um, and you consider each stop like a, a node, then then that forms a graph, right? As you spiral out through the through the through the maze. Is that the best way to describe sure. it? Sure. I mean that definitely fits the bill, yeah. And and there's so many different ways to construct mazes um, with different uh, different features, like you can make a maze that's very windy with very long passages, or you can make a maze that's more direct with a lot of short little side passages. Um, that was, that's one of the things, as I wrote the book, I didn't know most of those algorithms until I started writing the book. And it was so fun to discover them and think of how to describe them and how to implement them. Um, I think it's, it's very much a kind of puzzle in itself. People think of mazes as a puzzle that you have to solve, but mazes are also a puzzle that you can build, which is a, a really pleasurable way to, to approach it too. And in your book, you say that a maze is a, a spanning tree. What is, what's that? Yeah. A spanning tree. So a tree is basically, oh, you're going to make me cover set theory here, graph theory. <laughs> Uh, a graph is a collection of points called vertexes and edges that may or may not connect 
well, edges that connect vertexes. And not every vertex needs to have an edge, but every edge has to have a vertex at either end of it. So it's like lines and dots, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a tree is a special kind of graph where there is only one path between any two points in the tree. So you can't, without backtracking, you cannot um, cover uh, more than one path between any two points. And that's what a, it's called a perfect maze is a spanning tree. Here's a, a tree. So a spanning tree is a special kind of tree that covers every point in the graph. Um, so you might have a, a graph with two trees in it that don't, that don't overlap. Um, but if you have a graph and every point is part of a tree, that tree is called a spanning tree. And that's what these mazes are, these perfect mazes. Uh, unless you add some, you change the rules a little bit because sometimes that's fun to do and then you can wind up with other other things. If I have a maze and it's like, okay, say it's five by five, so it, ha- it would have 25 cells. So like in the graph theory world, that would be like 25 nodes. And then, uh, yeah. uh, so a tree, a spanning tree is a tree that, that connects all of them in such a way that um, there's no loops. Is that, did I get it right? Right, exactly. So you can't you can't find yourself walking around in circles in a in a perfect maze, which is a spanning tree. There's only going to be one way, and if you the only way you can um, walk in a circle would be to backtrack, like retrace your steps. And so, um, like you go through different ways to build mazes and. So they're all really just at some level, like finding this tree, um, finding it. Well, I guess there's many, there's many possible trees, right? Of a set of points. And then, yeah. Like if you think of even just a, a two by two graph, right? Mm -hmm. Four nodes, you could enumerate pretty, pretty trivially all the possible quote unquote mazes on a two by two graph. Um, but as it gets bigger and bigger, that number grows very quickly. So like a five by five graph is going to have a very large number of possible spanning trees associated with it. And you're right. Like the, the, the task of generating a maze from a graph like that is effectively like reaching into a giant bag full of all these different mazes and picking one of them out at random. And some of the algorithms do a better job of being truly random about it. Others tend to have biases like might tend toward certain kinds of trees more than others. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's like, you never know what you're going to get until you reach in and you pull it out. So then um, like, isn't the ultimate algorithm then to just like, uh, just iterate through that, that, you know, uncountable set of how many, I guess not uncountable, yeah. but yeah, yeah. That, that set of all possible mazes for a, or all possible trees for a given graph. Exactly. And there's only two that I know of that do that. They're called, it's, when you do that, it's called a uniform spanning tree, which means it's been selected with perfect uniformity from that set of all possible mazes. And Aldous Broder is one of those. And Wilson's is another algorithm that, uh, that can do that. The drawback of those is they tend to be fairly inefficient in terms of speed. Um, and that's why we tend to go with those 
the others that have biases is because they are faster, especially as you get to larger and larger graphs. Yeah, so an interesting thing um, as I'm learning about mazes from your book is is this notion of biases where, um, like, you know, you you walk me through an algorithm for, for generating a maze, and it's, it's random, right? Uh, but as we generate it, um, the way that this this algorithm constructs them um, actually has like a visual representation in, in some sort of bias. Um, um, so how would you describe bias? It's easiest to, to describe bias by giving examples. Um, for instance, there's one algorithm, the binary tree algorithm, that the way you build it is you only ever choose between two directions at each node in your maze. And so because of that limited choice, your maze will always kind of run diagonally. It'll, ha- it'll tend to have big, long diagonal runs through the, the maze. Um, another form of bias is like the uh, recursive backtracker algorithm, which will generate these big, long, winding passages. So the maze has a high degree of, it's called river, when it has a lot of long, winding passages. Uh, so that's another kind of bias. It's like if you go to a fast food restaurant, right, and you always order the same thing or, or you know, maybe one or two or three things that you always order, um, eventually the people there are going to have your order ready when you get there because they can predict what you're going to do. You, you may randomly choose between those three things on the menu, but they're still, they know it's a pretty good chance that they're going to be able to guess what you're doing. And that's, that's like bias. Whereas if there's someone who goes every day to the, to McDonald's or something and uh, chooses something perfectly random from the menu. Yeah. You know, the people there may know their name, but they're never going to be able to guess what they're going to order. Yeah. Well, they'll just be, here's that guy who picks things completely (laughs) (laughs) strange items. Exactly. Here's that weirdo again. (laughs) Are you taking things from, from graph theory and applying them to mazes? Is that how you, is is that how you got here with the book? I cannot take any credit for the algorithms in that book. Um, there's a wonderful website called Think Labyrinth. Um, Walter Pollan is the author of that website, and he's he's done a lot of thinking, a lot of work on mazes and algorithms. He's compiled um, a list there, which is where I was first exposed to them. Um, there's also you know, some of the algorithms are more commonly referenced than, than others in different places. Uh, the Prim's algorithm and recursive backtracker, those show up pretty often, just even online, people talking about generating mazes. But the, that Think Labyrinth website was really a wealth of information. I still had to, like, he, he doesn't give you actual implementations of the algorithms, so I still kind of had to puzzle out some of them. Um but yeah, he was his uh, his website was invaluable. But you, you know, I, you're right that as far as graph theory, like understanding graph theory, if you want to develop your own algorithm, you're you're probably going to have to really understand graph theory and what it means. You, you look at the researchers like Aldous and Broder and Wilsons who who generated these algorithms that you know have the, their names attached to them. They're they're researchers and university professors and, and, you know, that level of academia. Um, it's it's going to be a lot harder to accidentally stumble on a, a new algorithm, I think. What are mazes, like, teaching us about algorithms? That's a great question. 
I mean, what is an algorithm, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a series of instructions that tell you how to accomplish some task. And we're exposed to them all the time, not just in computers, but in everyday life, right? Whether you want to make dinner, right? You make something you've not done before, you're going to find a recipe that's going to tell you the steps to follow to do it. And that's an algorithm. So algorithms are ubiquitous and they're everywhere. One of my favorite things has always been to find like a, a data structure, like a B tree or something like that, and learn the algorithms associated with that data structure, like how to insert something into it or delete something from it. And I've always really enjoyed the puzzle of turning a, a description of an algorithm into a working implementation. So that's one of the things I love most about the whole maze generation is it's a collection of code recipes, basically, that teach you how to create these really visual things. Um, and there's just something so satisfying about writing a programming, having it produce something visual. Um, so, you know, for me, mazes are like the, basically just the, the visual side of algorithms. Um, they're a great way to, to get excited about the, the puzzle solving side of, of algorithms because you can see them. There's something immediate about that. For example, like you had in the book, like uh, Dijkstra's algorithm for, mm -hmm. um, so I had, I had had to learn about this in the past, uh, this algorithm, but I don't think it, it ever really clicked for me um, what it was, but as, as a, in the context of a maze, it makes sense, right? Uh, it's like starting from a certain point of the maze and, and kind of like heading out in all directions. Yeah. You know, that's, that's another thing I love about not just maze generation, but learning in general. When I was in college, I took a linear algebra class and I hated it. Oh my <laughs> gosh. It was, it was the worst class I've ever taken in my whole college career. But the next year I took a computer graphics class and it was amazing. And the professor spent two weeks reviewing linear algebra and it made sense to me because he gave me a context in which to relate it instead of being all these abstract ideas about like matrices and, and series and all this weird stuff that just didn't click for me. Suddenly it was like, Oh, if you have a point and a matrix representing a transformation, then you can do these things. And it clicked and I had a lot more fun with it. To me, that's like Dijkstra's algorithm because I'd read about it too, you know, back in college. But it wasn't until I was using it to navigate and analyze mazes that I was like, okay, this is where it's clicking for me. And so it's like the more you learn, the more things you have in your head to hang other bits of knowledge on and it, it just enriches your life so much. Yeah, I'm not sure like if everybody thinks or learns the same way, but... uh like understanding these concepts through like very practical um, examples, uh, at least for me, it gives me something to kind of hang on the concept. And then, you know, I can abstract from there. Maybe I can see where it applies in more, uh, in other scenarios, but it's helpful to have this like concrete vision of, of an algorithm, for instance. I liked this one, uh, hunt and kill. Yeah. That's, I mean, that was the very first one I ever learned. That was the one my, uh, classmate showed me back in high school and so for years that was the only way i even knew how it was done but uh yeah it's a it's a novel approach where you you search linearly through the maze for 
the next available place to start start carving passages through your graph. So yeah, I have I got the maze book. I don't know how I came across it. I think I found it on Amazon, and then I ordered it, and uh, like it's it's beautiful and uh, like it's color and it's full it's full of uh, visualizations. Yeah. Um, and now you have this ray tracer book. I don't even think it's released, but I bought a, a pre release copy or something. Um, yeah, it's just in beta right now. So, and so now you've taken um, like this visual component to to like a whole new level. So you're you're so now you're writing a book on three D rendering. What what brought you to that idea? Well, it's like I said, I, I've I've loved ray tracing, which is a, a method of three D rendering. I've been involved with that for a long time. Just on the side. Um, there's a, an open source ray tracer called Povray, P-O-V-R-A-Y, which uh, a lot of people know about. And um, I've never actually contributed code to it. But, you know, 20 years ago, I used to um, hack in the code and like add features for my own use and experiment and see what would happen if I changed this or did that. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I really loved doing that. And then actually... Let's see, it was probably about two years ago, my uh, oldest son, who was 15 at the time, he's like, Dad, will you help me write a program? I want to learn how to write a program. I'm like, okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, you know, after a bit of thinking, I thought, you know, a ray tracer could be fun. It's been a while since I've done one of those. And so in Ruby, uh, which is what I do for my day job, and I, I think is a, a great way to, you know, the it's a very accessible programming language. So um, I wrote out a simple curriculum that he and I were going to do together. And we worked through this ray tracer and got it rendering spheres. And, and then I kind of went off on my own and was like, you know what, I could, I could turn this into a blog post or something. And so I outlined it all. And I was like, this outline could actually be another book. <laughs> and so that's kind of how it all started. Um, because, you know, I've just always, you know, I guess that's a theme between my two books, right. Is uh the visual nature of, you know, getting that visual feedback from something new. And, uh, you know, there's just something spectacular about rendering your very first 3D sphere. It's a, it's a good feeling. Yeah, there's a theme of your books that they're visual. There's the theme of them, like you use the term recreational. I really like that. Like they're like fun mm-hmm. uh, little things. There's another theme that I don't see too often. It's like they're, they're language neutral. So you, mm-hmm. you, your book isn't focused on like whatever, learn Capistrano, which I'm sure you could write, mm-hmm. but instead on, on like a specific like domain and you just, you just go deep. Yeah. Like I, I, uh, I mean, that's kind of the way I am too. I'm a generalist in a lot of ways. I, I like to be exposed to a lot of different things and my my regret is that for my maze book, I did it all in Ruby, um, which I find to be uh, pretty easy to read, easy to pick up language. But I've had a lot of people push back on on the book and say, you know, I was going to get that book, but then I saw it was in Ruby and I changed my mind, which made me sad. So one of my big goals with this Ray Tracer book was to make it completely language agnostic. Um so that there was no actual source code associated with it. There's just tests and pseudocode um, to really let you go, you know, in any language you want. And 
you know, people have used my maze book to, to write mazes in a lot of different environments. So, you know, there, I've heard people doing it in Swift and C Sharp and Java and Python and, you know, Elixir and various others. Um, but even just before this Ray Tracer book's even been out, you know, my beta readers and my technical reviewers, they've been embracing all sorts of different languages um, and very successfully too, uh, using just tests and pseudocode to, to base it off of. And so that's been really exciting to me. And I, I, I want to see if I can find other ways to, to do that, to help make it more accessible to, uh, you know, more people, this, this idea of recreational programming. Yeah, I think it's great. And like, to me, the maze book seems fairly neutral because like, yeah, you have it written in Ruby, but like, um, uh... I guess the thing is, it, it's not a gigantic problem. Like, it has a lot of different pieces that you can dive deep on. But, like, mm-hmm. it's easy to think about how I could recreate this, you know, using whichever technology I, I choose. Right, and that's, that was kind of my goal. Like, both with the mazes and with the ray tracing, one of the things that I really am attracted to with them, besides the visual aspect, is the just how rich a domain they both are for exploration and experimentation. There's a lot of room for playing what if games like, okay, the algorithm said to do this, but what if I change it this way? Or, you know, what if I um, combine these two ideas into one thing? And there's just so many, so many ways you can go. Um, and, And at heart, I guess I'm an explorer in that sense. Like I like to try things and, and, uh, you know, experiment with things and see what happens. So I guess we should describe a ray tracer. It's like a, a 3D rendering. Yeah. Some pictures in your books. I'm looking at one now. It's like a red glossy globe mm-hmm. sitting on like a checkered background. And there's kind of reflections. And uh, I'm sure people have seen these kind of ray tracer pictures before. They have like a, a they always seem to me like almost more detailed yeah. than like reality. Yeah, hyper-realistic is a term that's often yeah. used to describe <laughs> them. Yeah. How how do you build a ray tracer? You know, that's the thing. People look at pictures <laughs> like that, especially if they have zero experience with computer graphics. They'll look at pictures like that and say it's magic, right? Yeah. Um, but with any image like that, you do it a pixel at a time. And with a ray tracer, you do it by taking a ray of light and you follow it backwards from the hypothetical eye that's looking at the scene. And so you take a ray from the eye through a pixel in the scene. You follow it and if it hits something, you bounce it or whatever until you figure out the intensity of the color at that particular pixel. And then you do it again for another pixel. And then you do it again for another pixel. And so it's not fast. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of work done recently, especially for real-time ray tracing, but this book does not talk about, in any sense, real-time ray tracing. It's really just introducing people to the concept and showing them that you know, with with a remarkably small amount of code, <laughs> you can actually create some pretty spectacular pictures. Yeah, you're finding these domains that are very like fractal. Like once you get into them, there seems to be a, like you can go deep in any direction. Yeah, yeah, good uh, description. That's that's it exactly. So in the maze book, it feels like we're exploring uh, algorithms and computational complexity through this visual medium of generating mazes. Yeah, in some ways, yeah. So if that's the case about the maze book, what is the Ray Tracer book 
covering? Well, one of my goals with the Ray Tracer book was to take a very mathematically intense domain because there's no getting around it. There's a lot of math involved when you're taking a line and intersecting it with different shapes and primitives and then trying to calculate the intensity of light arriving at a particular point. Like, there's a lot of math. Um, But my goal was to present it in a way where no one had to be a mathematician or a physicist to understand it. It could be um, more recipe-driven, where, you know, if you want to see if this ray intersects a sphere, here's the algorithm. And the algorithm, you know, uses a square root and it, it does this and that. And if you're mathematically inclined, you'll recognize the quadratic theorem in there and things like that. But you don't have to be. And you can still create these things. And um, you'll be exposed to a lot of these concepts, like finding the inverse of a matrix, which might seem very intimidating, but I've tried really hard to present it in little bite-sized pieces and step through and you wind up wind up building this this whole thing from scratch. It's pretty cool. I was sitting here over my Christmas break and I'm like typing up some code and you know my wife's like, what are you working on? I'm like, oh I'm gonna make these like 3D uh pictures or whatever. And she's <laughs> like, yeah, it looks like you're doing math. I'm like well I mean I, I think that I'm actually writing a function to do the dot product of a matrix. So I think that she I think you've tricked me. I think it was all uh, <laughs> you've you've created a book about linear algebra or something. Yeah. It really uh, I think uh especially the first few chapters are probably the most intense that way, but I it's the kind of thing where I I do want people to kind of look back and feel tricked but in a good way to look back <laughs> and go, "Oh my gosh. I just just you know, one little baby step at a time instead of you know, to tie it back to what we were talking about at the beginning, instead of walking down that slope into a dark place of burnout, you're walking up this slope into this sunny place where you're like, look what I did without even without even realizing where I was going kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I hadn't heard this term before we started talking recreational programming. Mm-hmm. Um, is, this a, is this a term you've coined? Or? I don't think I've coined it. I'm sure I heard it somewhere. Um and in fact, I, it seems like I've Googled the term before too. And there's, there's, there's stuff out there about it. Um, I haven't found a lot of materials, like especially published books about it though. Um, and I'd like to see more, I, you know, I hope, I hope more people will uh, see the value in exposing people to programming concepts in recreational contexts. What's the, what's the magic behind recreational programming? Why do you think it's valuable? Let's say that. Well, for me, speaking for me personally, I think recreational programming has been a big part of helping me get over my burnout to rediscover not only that I can still write software, but that I can still have fun doing it. Um, and that's really my hope with these books is to help people see that, you know, um, maybe your job's not thrilling you right now, or, or maybe you're pushing through a hard spot on a project, or, or maybe you're struggling with burnout too, but it's not the end. It's not like you're never going to be able to write software for fun again. And that all it takes is, you know, uh, a little bit of time. And it's, it's like a, it's like going outside, right? Um, getting that fresh of that breath of fresh air and, and, remembering that there's a whole world out there and you're not, you're not stuck in this little domain 
where you are for, you know, eight or 10 hours a day. Yeah, I think you've really accomplished that job. I think like for me as a professional developer, I really appreciate that. I think that there must be also like some merit for like, um, like getting people into programming, but in a more fun way. Yeah, with the mazes one, I really wanted to do that. I wanted it to be very much a beginner level um, book. The Ray Tracer one, I have to admit, is really targeted at people who have programming experience because it is test-driven. So you 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 need to have uh, a foundation in some programming language, and you should probably have some experience with writing unit tests as well. Uh, so as much as I'd hoped to be able to target that one at, at you know, beginners that's probably not so much the case but with the maze one yeah that was really one of my goals have you thought about um like taking this out on the road and like teaching people um like i I was thinking about there's all these coding boot camps seem to be Mm. in vogue now and like but they're all very focused on like getting a job right so it's like learn how to whatever retrieve and pull things from a database and you know, get a GitHub account and make sure you have a portfolio of things you created. But like, what about just teaching people to do cool, fun things? You know, like, I think that's, I think that would be a lot of fun. I don't know that I could support myself doing something like that yet. (laughs) It was just, that's, you know, an important part of the decision, just given that my wife is currently in, in school right now. But, um, I would love to see that. And I've, part of me has, has hoped that eventually, Someone else might do that too, like using my books to, to teach a curriculum or something. Um, I was able to speak at um, one of the classes. I, I, I live in uh, the Logan, Utah area right now, which is where uh, Utah State University is. And one of the mm-hmm. computer professors there has invited me a couple of times to speak to his game programming class, which has been a lot of fun. I've been able to share some of the maze, uh, maze generation concepts in creative ways with them. And uh, it's, it's always been really fun to see their eyes kind of light up as they, they hear these ideas for the first time and realize that, I mean, obviously they're in a game programming course, so they're mm-hmm. expecting to write something fun and creative. So that's that's a leg up for them right there. But um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I really do love teaching. I love presenting. So I don't know, maybe I will start looking for a way to, to take the show on the road, as you said. Yeah, well, I just, I found it to be a lot of fun. So I imagine like myself being in a room with other people working through this would would also be a lot of fun. I think um, it would. I think there'd be a really good energy in a group like that. Yeah. And the, the books are all, uh, this is just an interview where I'm just like a fanboy like, the entire time. <laughs> the, but the books are all color. Um, yeah. Like, how did you come up with that idea? Well, originally with the maze one, I mean, with the ray tracing one, it almost has to be color because that's the yeah. whole point. But with the maze one, originally it was going to be a black and white book. But then I had this idea for using Dijkstra's algorithm to visualize the structure of the mazes using uh, shades of color. And my editor, um, she was like, you know what? We need to propose a color book for this so that you can include these. And uh, Because originally I was using shades of gray so it would all be compatible. But it's just so much more spectacular in color. Even though the book itself doesn't need to depend on color so much, but so those, those uh, visualizations are a lot more spectacular in color. I'm glad that I'm glad it worked out to be in color. Cause I think it's a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not like a glossy magazine, but the places you use color, 
It adds something. Maybe something that I didn't realize was missing in, mm-hmm. in other books. Um, One of the issues with the color is um, colorblind, you know, being sensitive to that. And I, I honestly, I don't know how friendly my books are to the colorblind. So I, I have been a little concerned about that. But uh, in general, I think adding color for visualizations really does add a, a richness to, to recognizing the patterns and the, the biases like we were talking about. Yeah, so I can provide you with some information here. So I am red, green, colorblind. Oh, okay. Yeah. and How's, uh, how's the book for you then? <laughs> so I think it's awesome. Like the, the maze book especially, um, like I think the way it uses color is not like a lot of colors combined. Okay. Um, so yeah, I know I found it great. And uh, well, that's good. Uh, like that's the ray tracing, one. the ray tracing book is beautiful. I don't think like it's not like certain things turn on, like you know, uh-huh. needing to identify if this is a shade of red or shade of green. Like, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Thanks for setting <laughs> my mind at ease a little bit there. Yeah. No, I think it's great. I feel like you must have some other domains in your back pocket. Like you're just <laughs> you're next. You're going to write one about. I don't even know. <laughs> I've actually been asking myself that same question. Like right now at the end of this journey with the Ray Tracer book, I'm feeling pretty drained. I, I'm working on a couple of bonus chapters that I'm publishing online. I've got one published online already, working on another one about bounding boxes as an optimization. So, I mean, I think those will keep me busy for a few more months. But I mean, like I've always been a, a tinkerer and I'm sure I've got some other things I can find a find a way to present part of me is kind of wants to rewrite the maze book in the same format as the, the ray tracer book with the test driven and pseudocode. But uh, I don't know. I don't know if that'll happen or not. We'll see. Yeah. Like uh, my vote would be for another domain because uh, it's just fun to, to explore these things and I don't know where to look for them, but I mean, maybe, so what's your secret? Uh, do you just like, something catches your eye and you just go really deep on it. And then it turns out. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. I, I tend to get really compulsive about things like that. Well, uh, what was it? It was probably 10 or 11 years ago. I, uh, my wife brought home a little book about cat's cradle for our kids to play with, you know, the, the string game that you play with the loop of yeah. string. And, uh, I got to wondering, I wonder what other things, patterns you can make. And so I went online and discovered that there's a whole community and that there's an international string figure association. And, and I, I dove really deep on that. And, uh, but it, it's kind of hard to write a, an algorithm yeah. book about. Um, so, I mean, things like that, I, I tend to get really obsessive and like compulsive about that. Like really um, something catches my eye and I'll go really deep on it. And then, uh, so I, I don't know, I, I have to, I'm sure something else will come up. I, I don't doubt that I'll have another book idea eventually. I can't give you a timeline though. <laughs> don't worry, I'm not your editor. So. <laughs> the the thing that's fun too, um so um like a lot of times in in writing software, I don't know, uh a lot of things tend to be about sort of like uh just like modeling concepts, like kind of you know, breaking out concepts as like classes or data structures or, or whatever. Um, and, um, the implementation of your, like at some level you, you end up with just kind of like raw data structures, I I guess at some point I'm just, you know, I'm throwing around, uh, raw arrays or, or tuples Mm -hmm. or something. One of my goals really is for people in any, you know, with exposure in any 
any environment, any programming language, um, any discipline, any any specialty to be able to come to these and find something that they can do. And and uh, you know that's one, like I said, one of my regrets with the the maze book is that it really it does uh, almost uh, mandate uh, a particular architecture in Ruby, um, but it's easily adaptable. Uh, but with the the ray tracer one, I, I've tried to leave it a lot more up to the the reader as to how they're going to architect this. Uh, you know, the tests do dictate to some de- degree how that goes. But you're right; like a lot of times, I, I I try and refer to just these raw data structures, and then leave it up to you, the reader, to say, you know, this this might be better encapsulated this way, or or combined with this other thing this way. Yeah, and the maze one, for instance, um, like, um, so I would say the the way the maze is designed is is like somewhat uh, like object oriented, mm-hmm. but I don't think that um, like I don't think the algorithms need to be. I I was trying to envision this in my mind how I would write it in maybe like a more functional or immutable style. Mm-hmm. Um, I I haven't really clicked on to what that would be, but the interesting thing about the problem domain right is is it can be applied to different. Uh, styles of programming I yeah guess. absolutely and it makes me happy to hear that you've it's got you thinking because that's you know that's the, that's the goal right is um you don't close the book and that's the end of the story it, it really it really needs to go on and that's totally up to the reader to you know what what, what ideas it sparks in their in their heads and and where they want to take it yeah so like myself um, let's if I'm if I'm learning something new like a, a new piece of technology like obviously like hello world everybody does kind of like a hello world <laughs> right um, but then like what's after that I guess is, is something I think about right and mm-hmm. so like I guess for me like oftentimes it might be like some sort of like web scraper that like pulls some information from somewhere mm-hmm. or or some sort of like light web app or something yeah. um but like, I don't have too many ideas for what these are, and I feel like you've given me some, like the the maze generation or or a ray tracer is like one of these. Like, it could be a project that you throw at something new uh, to learn it. Yeah, yeah. In fact, after I'd finished the ray tracer book and sent it off for the the first production phase, I uh, I sat down with OCaml, which is a language I'd always wanted to learn, and mm-hmm used my book to learn OCaml. And it was, I'm, I'm sure my implementation was wonky and weird to an experienced OCamelist, but um, but it worked. Like I was able to write a ray tracer in OCaml using, using my book. And that was a, a big validation for me because like you, like when you start in a new environment, a new language, a new whatever, you kind of want something to, to dip your toes in and get a feel for how the language works. And, uh, that's that's definitely something I've hoped people would use these these books for as well. So how is this how you learn as as a programmer, or how do you think people should learn? Well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna <laughs> claim I know how people should learn. I know how I learn, and I learn by doing. Like um, I do not learn well from. I'm gonna shoot myself in the foot here and say I don't learn well from books. <laughs> <laughs> Um, on, on, on the, on one hand, that's true. Like, I, I don't think I would learn a new programming language from a book. I, I do learn techniques and like refactoring ideas and, you know, things like that. 
um, larger concepts. I do learn those well from books, but for a programming language, I have to do it. Um, and so I learn best by looking at other people's code, by reading through the API documentation, by you know referring often to Stack Overflow, and just sitting down and starting to build something. And uh, yeah, mazes have been my go-to for a long time with a new language. Uh, now, perhaps a ray tracer. Um, when I first learned Ruby, one of the first things I wrote was a simple um, HTTP web server. Um, just something to get your feet wet, you know? And so you think this is like a, like a peculiar thing about yourself? No, I, I know there are other people that do it, but I also acknowledge that there are people who would say, I learn better by, you know, reading through a book and, and picking it out a piece at a time that way. There's going to be a lot of different ways people approach it. But if you learn like me, then, you know, I think these books are going to be a fantastic way for you to pick up a new programming language, a new programming style, new, new techniques, new strategies. Yeah. When I, when I got these books, I found like mazes and ray tracers, they're like two problem domains that you can really go deep on. And really without a lot of code, you can kind of produce interesting results and, you know, have like challenging outputs. Um, problems like this, they can be great. Uh, there's something bigger than hello world, but, but manageable to play around with like in a new language or in a new paradigm. And uh, they're super fun. So I found, like, I think that, like, like as you described it, burnout is real. And having some fun side projects that are kind of divorced from what you actually do um, day to day, it could be, like, very invigorating. So I, I thank you for that. Thank you. That warms my heart to hear because that truly is one of my life's goals, I think, is to help people remember what they, they found in computer programming originally um whether whether it's to help prevent burnout or whether it's just to give them a respite from their day job or whether it's even to find some of these concepts that they can include in their day job i don't know but i, I really want people to to remember what it was to be happy while writing software that's great that's a, a great mission thank you for coming on the podcast and, and thank you for these books everybody should check them out <laughs> thank you very much adam i appreciated this that was the show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you've made it this far, make sure you subscribe. Thank you very much to everybody who has left reviews in iTunes. Uh, let's give some special shout outs. There's somebody underscore Andy V in Canada. Great review. Thank you very much. Somebody, I'm just going to spell this A-T-S-J-I in Norway. Great review. Thank you very much for the five stars. Cold Russian Wind. That's a great name. Uh, thank you for the review. And uh, everybody else, uh, keep the reviews coming. Uh, they help the rating, supposedly. I don't really know. And yeah, thank you also everybody who, you know, responded to things on Twitter, who gave me feedback about the show, um, who joined the Slack channel. By the way, there's a Slack channel. Please join it. Uh, if you have any suggestions for the show, let me know. Until next time, see you later. Later.